We're going to be in the book of Ruth this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled there, <laughs> ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the sons, names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name was, of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. As we've been doing this summer, we're looking at our favorite Bible stories. And this morning, we're looking at Ruth. We're looking at the uh, whole of the book of Ruth. So we're going to be kind of uh, trying to go as uh, efficiently as we can to make sure we get all the way to chapter 4. It seems appropriate, though, since Ruth is a love story to highlight an announcement. It's in your worship folder on the first page, lower half. Peggy and Tiny Robertson are celebrating their 50th anniversary. Oh, good friend, let's give them a... Give our, uh... Don't think that means you have to call Tiny Boaz? I mean, but if you, if you want to, you can. Anyway, the church, we're all invited to celebrate with Tiny and Peggy. Saturday, August 21st, from 12.30 p.m. to 300 p.m. Uh, in the F- 3 p.m. 12.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the FBC lobby, kind of open house situation. So if you want to come in, make time on the 21st to come and celebrate with Tiny and Peggy, that'd be awesome. What is God's love like? What is God's love like? The account of Ruth and Boaz that we find in the book of Ruth tells us what God's love is like within the context of their relationship with one another, certainly, but also in the context of their identity among the people of God and what God is doing in covenant relationship with them. So what is God's love like? God's love is like a love story, but not so much Boaz and Ruth, but God's love for his his people. Verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us when. In the days when the judges ruled. If you want to know what the days when the judges ruled was like, read the book of Judges. It's a good read. It's interesting. There's a lot of violence in it. It's exciting. But I might suggest, in my humble estimation, there are few other times in the Old Testament as dark as the book of Judges. The rebellion against God's things and the things that happened as a result of that, there are few other places in the Old Testament as dark as the days of the judges. And the account of Ruth and Boaz occurs within the context of this great time of suffering. And what was happening was there was a famine. This famine should surprise no one. God told the people of Israel, Listen, here's how it's going to go. I want to love you and I want to be in relationship with you. And the way you participate in that relationship is by faith, worship of God in the ways he called them to worship. And he says this way, when you by faith worship me the way I have told you to worship, 
you will have lots of wine and you will have lots of grain and you will have lots of bread and you will have lots of babies and you will have lots of sheep. You have lots of, lots of stuff. When you choose in rebellion to deny faith and abandon me, God says, I will call you back into relationship with me through a number of means. Two, two of the primary means are famine and invasion. And that's what we see throughout the book of Judges. People rebel against God, and God calls them back into relationship with him through famine and invasion as a way of wooing them back to seek him out. This is one of those times of great famine. And Naomi is married to Elimelech, and they live in Bethlehem. Chapter 1 of the book of Ruth starts in Bethlehem and ends in Bethlehem. Starts in Bethlehem and ends in Bethlehem. Naomi leaves her homeland with everything she could ever want. A husband and two sons. When she returns to Bethlehem, she has with her a Moabite widow. As she tells the people of Bethlehem upon her return, I left full and have returned empty. And Pat read the passage. They leave to find food in Moab. While she is there, she is widowed. Her husband Elimelech dies. Her sons marry Moabite women. And in the course of time, they die. And Naomi the widow is left living with her two widow daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. The occasion comes when it's time for Naomi to return back home because she hears in the land of Israel there is once again plenty of food. So she decides it is time to return back to my homeland because there is plenty of food there. And she seeks to convince her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. And the primary reason is she cares for them. She wants them to find homes that can sustain them. That would mean getting married. And she knew in Israel the prospects for that would be very low, if not non-existent. She seeks to convince her daughters-in-law to stay. Over the course of time, her daughter-in-law Orpah decides to stay, but Ruth sticks with her. If you will, if you're in Ruth chapter 1 in your copy of Scripture, look with me at what Ruth says in verse 16. It's the key section of Scripture for this chapter 1. Here's what Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, when Naomi seeks to tell her to stay in Moab. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a very moving speech. This is a powerful speech that she gives to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Certainly we hear within this powerful speech a deep affection for Naomi. And we shouldn't minimize how much she loved her mother-in-law, Naomi. However... She loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, but she also loved Naomi's God. Because at some point, it is quite clear from what she says here, she determined to understand hope is in the Lord or in the Lord alone. Because notice what she says, your people will be my people, your God, my God. Ruth here is saying, I don't want to be a Moabite anymore. 
because the people of Israel have covenant relationship with God. I want to be identified as one who knows and loves God. And how do you do that? To be identified as one who is in covenant relationship with God through his people, the people of Israel. So certainly Ruth loved Naomi. More than that, she wanted to go where Naomi was going because where Naomi was going was where the people of God are. And where the people of God are, there is covenant relationship with God. How do I know that? Well, I just do, and I think I'm right. But also verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. What we have to remember here is some important things, especially just for a quick example, a guy named Joseph. Where did Joseph die? Egypt. And what did he tell the people of Israel before he died? Don't bury me here. This is not my land. I want to be buried in the promised land. And this is what we're picking up on. She's saying, listen, no, I want to be of the people of God. Because the Lord is my hope. The Lord is my hope to such a degree, Naomi, if you and I return to Bethlehem and starve to death, no problem. Because I will have been counted among the people of God and having covenant relationship with God. So Ruth here is declaring faith. She is saying, I have found my hope in the Lord. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. Naomi tells all of her friends in Bethlehem who sort of recognize her. They kind of give her the, is that really you? What happened? You look like you aged 30 years, but you've only been gone 10. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitterness. What? Yeah, that's the only thing. That seems appropriate. Call me bitterness. Because I have left full but returned empty. From Bethlehem to Bethlehem, nothing but hardship and difficulty, except she returns with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, a widow, who declares faith in God. So what is God's love like? God shows love to Naomi. God shows his love to Naomi in her bitterness through Ruth. So God brings his love to Naomi in the hardest of times through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Let's move on to chapter 2. We meet Boaz. Naomi had a relative. It was a relative of her husband, Elimelech, her dead husband, Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Naomi knows Boaz. Everybody in Bethlehem knows Boaz. You and I have read the book of Ruth, so we know Boaz. At this point, who doesn't know Boaz? Ruth. And Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go gleaning in the fields because the barley harvest has just begun. And Naomi says, that's a good idea because we don't want to starve. And so Ruth goes out and she just so happens to begin gleaning in the field of Boaz. Boaz is a good guy. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he shows up, and he tells his reapers this every morning. The Lord be with you. I'm not a morning person. I don't like guys like this. Show up to work. You haven't had all your coffee. The Lord be with you. What? Give me a break. Lord be with you. Have a cup of coffee. Simmer down, little camper. No, Boaz is one of those guys. Rolls out in the morning. Says to his reaper, the Lord be with you. And, and all the reapers shout back to him, the Lord bless you. Are they at harvest or are they at church? 
I mean, because what you see here, when Boaz is introduced, he is enjoying the bounty of his harvest because of the Lord. That's what we, we learn immediately about Boaz. And as soon as he gets out into the field and gets settled in, he notices Ruth. Who is this young woman? And a, a servant informs him, no, this is Ruth, the Moabite, the one who came back with Naomi. And of course, he has all, heard all of the stories about Naomi and her daughter-in-law who is caring, caring for her. And she is gleaning in Boaz's fields. Boaz went up to Ruth. He said, listen, my daughter, pay attention. Stay in my fields. And when you get thirsty, go over to the water jar that my employees use. You're welcome to help yourself to the water in the water jar. I've told all of my employees not to harass you, not to, not to make fun of the fact that you're a Moabite, not to physically harm you or assault you, not to take advantage of you, not to knock the grain out of your hands. I've told them to watch over you, so you stay with my people. Then lunchtime rolls around, and he says to Ruth, come over into the shade. Why don't you eat with me? So he gives her some grain, gives her some bread, tells her to dip it in the, in the oil and the vinegar because oftentimes out in the field, the bread, they didn't have Tupperware. I don't know if you know this or not. The bread by, by the lunch hour has gotten a little bit, uh, it's a crouton, I guess you would say. And, and so dipping it in a little bit of vinegar and a little bit of oil will give it enough elasticity. You can chew it at least. It doesn't dry out your mouth. And so she eats her lunch. In fact, he gives her so much that she's full and she can't finish it. And he says, no, take the leftovers home to, to Naomi. And then, and then she, he dismisses her. She goes out in the field and he tells his workers, listen, listen, listen. When you're, when you're harvesting, every now and then, oops, dropped one. Drop a little extra. And, and don't harass her if she gets too close and she gets in and, and collects some from among the unharvested. Listen, Boaz understood the law. What does the law tell us about gleaning? Gleaning is something that is very, very simple. You would have a field. And, and the law provided in Israel that the impoverished and the orphans and the widows and the foreigners could come in behind the harvesters and collect the leftovers. In fact, there were some rules about this. When you're harvesting, your harvesters are harvesting the barley and you get in and all of a sudden you realize you missed a stalk back there. You leave it. You don't get to go back. And then when you're harvesting your grapes, you're walking down the vine and you're clipping your grapes off and you realize, oh man, I missed a big giant cluster of grapes back there. What do you do? You leave it. You don't go over it twice. And then when you're harvesting your field, the Bible says in Leviticus, you don't harvest all the way to the edge. You leave, you leave a bit on the edge that you don't even cut down and that's just for the impoverished. That's just, that's just for the foreigners. That's just for the widows and the orphans to come by so they can get some food and they won't starve because there there weren't a bunch of social services. You didn't go down to health and human services. You had to glean. So let me ask some of you farmers. I don't know how many farmers we have in the house. If the rule was you couldn't harvest all the way to the edge, my question for you is how small would you make that border? How, How small? I can tell you how I would do it. I would make it one stock, right? And when you're, harvest, when you're hiring harvesters, what are you going to make sure you do? You get the ones that don't miss it the first time. I don't need guys making mistakes because I know the law says I can't send them back in to fix it. 
So I want to make sure I get harvesters that get every one. And I want to make sure I take that all the way to the very edge and I'll call my local Levite over. Hey, am I good? Can I go a little more? You think that's what Boaz did? What did Boaz do? I wonder how big I can make that border. Right? What, I wonder how big I can make that border, still meet all the needs of my workers, still meet the needs of my household, but then I know in our neighborhood, in our neighborhood, there's not going to be any poor people because my borders are so big that if they're hungry, they can just pick up my food. And, and if, a, if a widow Moabite shows up, I, I'm not, even if my guys are really good and they harvest it all, I'm going to tell them to drop it. Why? Because he understood the God who gave him the law. The law was not designed for him to have a checkbox of who was righteous. The law was designed to tell him what God was like. And God said this, I love widows, I love orphans, I love foreigners. Take care of them. And, and Boaz got it. So he left his borders wide, and he dropped grain for Ruth. And he made sure she was taken care of. Boaz's fields were fields that understood the law but not merely the law, the lawgiver, the heart of God to care for the least of these. And what Boaz saw in Ruth was not merely a young woman who was single. What he saw in Ruth was someone who had those same values because he saw how she treated Naomi. So Boaz had a heart to care for those and he saw in Ruth a heart to care for Naomi And so he saw in someone a kindred spirit. Boaz showed God's love to a foreigner. What is God's love like? God shows his love to Naomi through Ruth. I'm sorry. And in chapter 2, God shows his love to a foreigner, a Moabite of all people, through Boaz. Chapter 3. We're skipping a lot of stuff for those of you who know the story. You can probably read the book of Ruth in 15 minutes. You could probably read the whole thing through before I'm done with this message. So if you're tired of hearing me tell the story, you just read it. And you can get all the details yourself. Chapter 3. Of course, Naomi or Ruth came home and told Naomi everything that happened with Boaz. And, and Naomi was pretty stoked. She's like, wow, that guy's a good guy. And then in chapter 3, she said, you know what? I got to get you a husband. Why does she have to get her husband? Because that's how she, she's going to be cared for. Listen, I understand. We lived in, we live a long time from when this occurred. And nowadays, why should a woman need a man to live? I'm not trying to tell you whether it's right or wrong. It's just what it is. Back in that day, a widow is in a very dangerous and very precarious situation. And Naomi knew it. She didn't have time to do a picket line and fight for women's rights in this moment. I'm not saying she shouldn't have. She just needed to make sure Ruth would survive when Naomi died. And so Naomi understood the deal. I got to get her married. I got to take care of you. She said, listen, put on your best clothes. What is Ruth's best clothes? The clothes she hasn't worn harvesting. Pretty much the same clothes as the other clothes. She just hasn't worn them that day, and maybe they've been rinsed off in the river a bit. She tells her to put on some perfume. Why? To quote another verse, because by this time she stinketh. Because she works in the field. 
Sure, we get up in the morning, take a bath, take a shower, we work all day, maybe, hey, maybe even take a shower at night. Back then, you've got somewhat clean clothes, you're going to put on a sort of clean body. What do you do when, when you can't really get everything smelling really good? You cover the smell with some good old-fashioned perfume. And Naomi explains to Ruth, if Ruth didn't already understand, what she needed to do to make her intentions known to Boaz. She said, listen, Boaz is going to be threshing the barley. Here's what you do. You go at night. He's going to be in good spirits. Why? He's had a glass of wine or three. He's been harvesting. He's been threshing. It's a time of celebration, enjoying the bounty of the Lord and worshiping God through gratitude. And you're going to go out there at night, and I'll tell you what you do. You uncover his feet. So here's what would happen. Boaz would, would harvest the barley. Then they would, they would uh, toss it up in the air. They would do this sort of oftentimes right at uh, sundown because that's when the wind would be right. During the day, the wind might be a little too hard. Throw the barley in the air, and nothing comes down. It's all in the valley. At nighttime, at the dead of night, there would be no wind, but there's a sweet spot where the wind was enough that you could throw it up. The good grain wouldn't blow away, but the chaff would. So this is at, uh, at dusk, and these, these threshing floors were often built out on an outcropping, maybe on a cliff, so you got that good wind movement. So after this was done, there was a big pile of grain, and, and they had been celebrating and eating and feasting and drinking, and he laid down next to his grain. Ruth then ventures out, she uncovers his feet and lays down next to his feet. And you say, why in the world would she uncover his feet? I don't know. But what we do know is Boaz knew exactly what she was saying. And he woke up in the middle of the night. There's a woman laying at his feet, and he knows precisely what she's saying. What is she saying? I want to marry you. And what does Boaz say? Yes. Oh, come on, this is beautiful. Guys, get excited. Yay! She gave him the rose. Okay, I don't know what that means. Okay, it's terrible. It's awful. Verse 9 of chapter 3, who are you? She said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant because you're my redeemer. You're my redeemer. What does she mean by that? This, the, the, the land and, and relationships work together. Elimelech owned the land. And his land would go to his sons. Where are his sons? Dead as a doornail. Where's his land going to go? Somebody else is going to get it, and it's going to leave his family. So the next person most closely related to Elimelech could purchase the land so that the land would stay in the clan. And she is saying to Boaz, since you are related, and since I was married to Elimelech's son, you can purchase the land of Elimelech, and we will be married and be on his land maintaining the covenant relationship of God with his people and with his land. And Boaz says, that sounds awesome. There's a problem. There's another dude who's more closely related than me. He gets first swing at the land. So I tell you what, in the morning I'll take care of this. If he wants to buy the land, he can buy it. If he doesn't want to buy the land, then I'll take care of it. He then gives her a whole bunch of barley and sends her home to Naomi because he said, you will not return to Naomi empty-handed. So certainly, certainly Ruth was showing affection for Boaz and certainly Boaz was showing affection for Ruth. And certainly they both in the midst of this were not being cynical. Boaz could have looked at Ruth and said, oh, I see what it is. I see what it is. You see a rich old guy. You roll in from Moab and think you can marry the first rich old guy you find. 
And then Ruth could have been just as cynical. Oh, I see how you are, Boaz. You weren't able to land any Jewish girls. So the first young Moabite who finds yourself in a real precarious situation, you're going to be real nice to her. See how they could both be, be filled with all kinds of cynicism, but that's not what was happening here. Both of them were receiving one another as gifts from the Lord. Not merely as an expression of affection for one another, but understanding something bigger was going on here than romance. A covenant relationship with God, with God was going on. What is God's love like? God's love is shown to Boaz and Ruth for each other because as we're going to see in, their, in a minute, they were a part of something much bigger than merely a romantic marriage. Chapter 1, God shows his love for Ruth through Naomi. Chapter 2, God shows his love for a foreigner in Boaz. Chapter 3, God shows his love for Boaz and Ruth through each other. Chapter 4, redemption. Boaz goes to the town gate. That's where he did all these kinds of things. And the redeemer who he had been talking about, the more closely related relative, is walking by. Bethlehem's not a big place. He says, hey, buddy, come on over. He's like, all right, all right. So he sits down. He gets some witnesses. They're about to execute a real estate deal. Boaz says to this guy, you know what? Elimelech owns a piece of land. Naomi, his widow, she's selling it. You know what? What? You ought to buy it. And the guy says, what? That sounds awesome. Boaz, man, I knew you were a good guy, but man, this is great. And Boaz, yeah, guess what? It comes with a Moabite. It's like a, be it's a special deal. It's like buy a field, get a Moabite kind of deal. And the guy goes, whoa, I don't need a Moabite. In fact, that's dangerous for me. What happens if I have a baby with this Moabite woman? And, and what happens if that's the only kid we have? We have a son, and whose son is that kid? It's Elimelech's son. He's counted to Elimelech. So he owns the land when I die. What if we don't have any other kids? When I die, that kid gets all of Elimelech's land and all of my land. Worse yet, what if I have a son and then all I have is daughters after that? Well, that's rude. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Financially, though, that kid will get all of my land and my daughters will be left with nothing. And my whole land is going to end up... I'm not taking that risk. You can, I got fields. I don't need that field. And Boaz says, good, I'll buy it. Does Boaz take the same risk? Yes, he does. But he doesn't care. Because he is going to do what God has called him to do. So Boaz says, I will buy the field. And so this other guy, the non-field buyer, takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. Boaz takes it. Last time you bought a car, isn't this how you do it? Yeah, I'll take that one. Here you go. We've got to sign some paperwork. Hey, I'm not doing paperwork. I'll give you a sandal. It should be all we need. There's a law in the Old Testament, and it seems somewhat connected with this. There was a law in the Old Testament back in Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or Hezekiah. And it said this, if a, if a brother dies and the other brother won't fulfill his, his duty, which is to have kids for his brother to maintain his land, they would spit in his face and take his sandal. And from then on out, his family was to be called the family of the unsandaled. I've always thought that was the coolest name ever. But it seems like this real estate transaction is connected with that in some way. 
He is saying, no, 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 I don't want to fulfill the obligations to Elimelech. You do it. I'm unsandaled. And so therefore you fulfill the duties to Elimelech. So Boaz buys the land. He marries Ruth and they have children together. Boaz was willing to risk all of his own property because it was the right thing to do for both Ruth and for Naomi and because he understood what God was like. This is the kind of thing God is into. So yes, he expressed his love as an act of affection, but more than that, he understood love is an expression of covenant keeping, keeping promises. God shows his love to Naomi through Ruth, to a foreigner, Ruth, through Boaz, to Boaz and Ruth for each other. And finally, here in chapter 4, God expresses his love for his people. How does God express his love for his people? Look at Judges chapter 21, verse 25. What time is, when, when does the book of Ruth occur? During the time of the Judges. Judges 21, 25. Might be up on the screen. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges on repeat. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. This is verse 13 of chapter 4. He went into her and she had a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. Verse 17, The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. His father, or he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of who? David. There was no king. In all Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in a backwater, small town, two nobodies found the love of God together. And God says, I got your king covered. And God shows his love to his people. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, yay! He fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The point of the book of Ruth is not two lovebirds found love. The point of the book of Ruth is God is honoring his covenant to bring his Messiah, and that Messiah will be king of Israel. The story doesn't end with Ruth. In fact, it continues on. This, uh, this genealogy at the end of Ruth is repeated in Matthew chapter 1. You can turn there if you want, but I think I might have it up on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the same genealogy with some additions. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. 
Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. In Matthew, what Matthew, the gospel writer, is doing is saying, remember the hope of God for the people of Israel among the judges. A king is coming. The king came. His name was David. Guess what? He's not good enough. We need a king that never dies. We need a king whose throne lasts forever. So what the, the Matthew does is he says, Ruth continues and finds its culmination in the king, and the king is here, the son of David, Jesus the Messiah. What is God's love like? It is a love story where God shows his love for his people. And finally, in Jesus the Messiah, we say, what is God's love like? God's love There is plenty to spare. There is plenty to spare. So I want to contrast to show you just a little bit what Christ's love is like. Two guys in the Old Testament, Boaz. We got to start cheering for Boaz. Yay, Boaz. And then another guy in 1 Samuel 25, Nabal. What does Nabal's name mean? Fool. Nabal's wife was Abigail. Nabal was sheep shearing and the reason he had so many sheep to shear and the reason he had so much food and the reason he had been so blessed by God is David who had fled from King Saul had protected his assets so he lost nothing and David sent some guys in at sheep shearing time to Nabal's house and said hey we've been watching over your stuff and while we've been watching over it you haven't lost anything would you mind hooking us up with some raisin cakes maybe a sheep or two maybe a bottle of wine or seven And what did Nabal say? Take a hike. Of course, Abigail, his wife, was wise. She met David on the way for when he was going to go and wipe out Nabal and all of his his family. She meets him and provides for David and his men in keeping with the protection they, they had. So here we have, we have two guys. One is Boaz and one is Nabal. And I just want to contrast these two guys just for a minute. Do you mind? Boaz at harvest time celebrated and worshiped the Lord. And then when time came, he offered his entire inheritance to a Moabite widow. And when he was harvesting, he was gladly giving away his harvest to foreigners, to orphans, and to widows. When he was harvesting, did he know whether he would have enough or not? No, you don't know that till you're done. He trusted the Lord in his harvest, said, I can give it away. I can't outgive God's blessing. So for Boaz, no matter how much there was, there was more than enough. Now let's look at Nabal. No matter how much there was, there's not enough. How do I make sure I will have enough for tomorrow? Get a little bit more. So when David's men come who are owed for their protection, instead of giving in generosity, he looks for a way to be a cheapskate. And it's not merely a question of his character. The issue is Boaz understood what God was like and Nabal did not. Boaz understood God who was generous and kind. And so therefore there will always be plenty. Nabal understood a God who is a cheapskate And so therefore, you got to make sure you get yours. Boaz understood Deuteronomy 15.4, where God said, Listen, there needn't be no poor among you. 
Seek covenant blessing for me and trust and obey God and I will give liberally to you and you can give liberally to others. And and Boaz understood that. The God revealed to us in the Old Testament, as we see in Boaz and many other places, and the New Testament, is God is God with plenty to spare. He gives generously, overflowing in kindness and mercy, overflowing in his love expressed to his children, And we see this most profoundly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. I'm just going to read it. What I want you to be looking for as I read this passage, I won't give much comment, and that's a total lie, but Romans 8, 31 through 39, what I want you to be paying attention to is expressions of God's overwhelming generosity seen in the gospel here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God did not spare his own son Jesus. This is what God's love is like. He is not sparing. He gives too much. He is overflowing with kindness, overflowing with loving mercy. He is giving more than is needed. And in fact, giving more than we deserve, and he gives it all freely. The love story of Boaz and Ruth, as moving as it is, is a story of uh, not really romantic love. It's a story of eternal love. It's not really even so much a story of their love. It's a story of God's love for his people. He said, I will provide you a king, and I will provide you a Messiah, and I'm going to do that, including the love of Boaz and Ruth for one another. Three quick things, and then we'll close. And by quick, I mean really lengthy. But let's talk about Boaz and Nabal just again, just because I like these two guys. Boaz, Boaz. Boaz and Nabal both had the same thing, and that is great wealth. One had plenty, the other not enough. I'm going to suggest to you why one, both wealthy men, why one had plenty and why one had not enough. Here's my suggestion, and if you disagree with me, that is fine. I always say it's okay to be wrong. We act in ways we think God is. If I think God is a cheapskate, I will be a cheapskate. 
if I am convinced God is generous, I will be moved to generosity. Boaz was generous because he knew what God was like. And make no, you know, we need to pay close attention. He had just lived through a 10-year famine. It's not like he had a silver spoon in his mouth. He understood what God was like. He said, if God is this generous to me, then I've got to be generous because how else could I be? The issue is how we behave towards others is fundamentally connected with and to what we think God is like. If we think God is a curmudgeon, grumpy, just looking for a reason to smite, then we will be grumpy, curmudgeon, looking for reasons to smite. But if we are overwhelmed with the blessed generosity of God's grace shown towards us, then we will be moved to show similar grace towards others. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. This is a passage you're familiar with if you've ever been to a wedding. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I would just remind us this about love as we experience it from God. Love that is experienced from God and expressed towards others How do I say it? We should allow our love to question our cynicism. Those of us who are cynical, I'm only cynical when I'm awake. And when I'm asleep, I'm skeptical. So those are kind of my two, right? I need to allow the love of God to warm my heart and say, you know what? Maybe I need to see the best in others, the way Boaz did. Maybe he doesn't just see a gold digger, Moabite. And maybe Ruth doesn't just see an old man who can't lend a good Jewish girl. And maybe we need to extend to others the same benefit of the doubt, the same grace and kindness that Jesus extends to us. And then if you're like me and you're cynical, you're saying, I know what you're saying. They're going to take advantage of me. Are you thinking that? You should be. Let me give you lessons. No, then what do we say to Jesus? Do we ever take advantage of him? There's enough love to go around. We can even be taken advantage of because we have enough love from God. We should allow others, we should allow the love of God to so fill our heart we see the best in others. And instead of cynically questioning everyone, we should allow the love of God to question our cynicism because God has plenty of love to go around. Okay, last passage of scripture and then we will close. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Let me read it. It's not up on the screen because I added it this morning. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love of God, or I should say in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we, have lo- if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let me just summarize a few, one idea here. Our job here is not merely to try and figure out how to love people. Our job here is to experience the love of God. One of the reasons we struggle with loving others 
is because we've never really experienced the love of God. Because the love of God is most profoundly experienced in our recognition of our sin. How could God love a sinner like me? And if God can love me fully and completely through his son, and I recognize my brokenness and he loves me even still, then that love then has the ability to be passed on to others. One of the reasons it is hard to love others is because we won't allow ourselves to experience the love of God because to experience the love of God means to recognize he loves a sinner like, like us. When we experience the love of God profoundly by his grace that Jesus died for us and rose for us, what happens then is we have plenty of love to share with others because God never stops giving us his love. What is God's love like? It is a love story for his people where God has plenty of love to spare.